Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, God bless you. It's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again today. Thanks to everybody who helped with our Easter services last weekend. We had a phenomenal weekend worshiping outside in the sun. Thanks to all of you who showed up bright and early to set up and prepare and to rehearse. Everybody who helped move chairs around, move tents around, make the morning happen and clean up afterwards. That was a lot of work from a lot of volunteers. So if you're one of them, uh, thank you so much. And if you're sitting next to one of them, give them a hug right now. Uh, that is so much, uh, that is much appreciated. Uh, Real Life exists to lead people to Jesus and to be a community of grace with a God-sized vision for every generation. And that certainly happened uh, this last week. I was following up with uh, emails and letters to lots of first-time visitors who signed in for the first time and was just thankful that you all are so intentional about inviting people into God's family and welcoming welcoming them into our our community of grace here together. So thanks for doing that. Uh, again, if you have not already picked up a blessing card at the church, make sure you do that. This is something we're doing together this year. We're, we're taking this card and writing down the names of eight people that we are going to pray for and find creative ways to bless, to invite them into God's family and to be an example of Jesus to them. And I hope you have that card uh, already and it's someplace in your home or in your car where, you, where you'll see it every day and you'll remember to pray for those people uh, and seek to care for them and bless them. Uh, that's that's a, a great way to remind ourselves of the mission that we're on. So that is a, that's, it's been a great week, and I appreciate you. Uh, we're going we're gonna to dive into a new series today, um, and, and uh, let, let, me, let me set this up for us. Um, we're going to dive into a series that's going to address the nature of the world that we live in. You and I live in a world that's full of distrust, and this goes back several decades. Back in the back in the 1960s, there was a there was a significant cultural shift in the United States. There was a a shifting of authority and trust because you had uh, you had Senator McCarthy going around trying to weed out communists, and you had President Nixon and the Vietnam War raising levels of suspicion about government and the military, like had never uh, been been raised in in recent memory. Uh, and there was a significant, significant cultural shift that happened as a result of all that. The church uh, had, had in many ways flown under radar in our culture, and many people had turned a blind eye to the, to the uh, abuse of power that had often happened in the church. Uh, and then you know what happened in the 1960s, especially if you're a Californian, you know what happened. Hippies happened. Uh, hippies happened. And there was an explosion of distrust that went through our culture, some of which was very good and some of which was very bad. In some ways, it was good because the civil rights movement undermined structures that needed to be undermined and, and took a significant shift uh, to change centuries of abuse of power in our world. So there were, there were movements towards distrust that were actually very healthy for us. But at the same time, along with that, the distrust of authority opened up a door to different kinds of lifestyles and behaviors that weren't always healthy. The drug culture exploded in the 60s. And there was a, a change in relationships. The, um, 
the uh, birth control pill came out, Roe versus Wade passed, the divorce rate skyrocketed. The divorce rate in America around 1950 was just under 25%, and by the year 2000, it had doubled. And the relationship of the population to the church changed. In the late 1960s, church attendance in the United States started to decline and has consistently declined every year since about 1967. Distrust exploded in our culture, in some ways good and in some ways bad, but it shifted the way we think about and relate to authority. And so my parents' generation grew up calling their elders sir and ma'am. I grew up calling my parents' friends Mr. and Mrs. My kids' friends call me Jim or sometimes strangely Papa. And as weird as that is, I still think it's probably better than what they're calling me behind my back. Our, our relationship to authority has changed because our, our sense for trust has changed. And that has, that has uh, uh, crept over, seeped over into our relationship with the Bible itself. People view the Bible in our culture with more distrust than they did 70 to 100 years ago. Uh, the, the seminaries teach students to be suspicious of the Bible. This began actually a couple hundred years ago when scholars began to look at the Bible as a piece of literature, and they began to ask questions about it they, the way they asked questions about other historical pieces of literature. And as they studied it, they would point out the fact that there are two fairly different creation stories at the beginning of the Bible, which makes it look like there were maybe two different authors and two different times with two different agendas. And as you read along, you see that the, the creation narrative in Genesis uh, runs up against the evolutionary science, and just like it ran up against the, the things that Galileo saw through his telescope a couple hundred years before that. And as you really get into the, the literary studies of the Bible, you see that there are certain books that looks like they had more than one editor, more than one author or more than one editor. And sometimes there are two books supposedly written by the same author that have very different writing styles and vocabulary. And so scholars began to raise questions about the Bible and how it was put together and what it means, and consequently to raise questions about what authority it has. By the time I was in seminary, they were teaching us to use what they called a hermeneutic of suspicion, which means to read the Bible with sort of suspicious lenses, particularly because of what the Bible had been used to do to women historically in terms of how women were treated and respected. And the Bible, we were told, was filled with what they called, quote, texts of terror because of the way it had been used to marginalize women. So any average sophomore today is completely conversant with all the questions you can raise about the Bible, about the authorship of the Bible and how the Bible was put together, about how the, the Bible has been used and abused by the church, about the apparent contradictions that run through the scriptures, and about the many ethical issues, the myriad of ethical issues that the Bible never even addresses. You and I live in a world of distrust. And so I want to spend the next three weeks looking at the Bible itself and ask the question, how do we trust it? How did it come to be? What is it for us today? And I want to look at instances in the Bible where the Bible talks about itself or where someone uses or encounters the Bible and talk about how that informs our lives today. 
So we're, we're going to begin by looking at a story from 2 Kings 22 about a king who rediscovered the Bible in his day. And, uh, and we're going to look at what that means for we who might rediscover God's Word in our own day. Uh, take a moment and uh, pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you are a God who speaks, that at the creation of the world, you spoke the universe into being. That through the revelation to the four fathers and mothers of the scriptures, you spoke your word to them. You gave them your written law and you spoke prophetically through those who could hear you. In the fullness of time, you walked the earth and revealed yourself to us, Jesus of Nazareth. And now your Holy Spirit is out on the loose, calling all who would listen and respond. And I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would call we who are listening and praying and thinking right now, that as we open your printed word, you would reveal your word on our hearts. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Um, Okay, so we're going to get into a study of an ancient king who discovered the Bible. Let me, let me tell you how I approach the Bible as we get into it. Um, there are two different approaches I take to the Bible. One, uh, I'm, I side with Mark Twain, uh, who said, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that scares me, it's what I do understand that scares me. The most direct and challenging texts of the Bible are often texts that we don't have to decipher. They're very clear. And if we avoid them, it's not because we don't understand them, it's because we're afraid of them. So I assume that the most poignant and challenging parts of the Bible are actually the parts we can understand fairly easily. Secondly, I approach the Bible like a bit of a scientist. I like to poke and prod at it, come up with hypotheses about what it's doing and what it is, and then test those hypotheses out. And as I've done that, I've found that the Bible is a little bit different than some dead matter. You could put dead cells under a microscope and study the, the, the matter contained within them. But if you put a live virus under a microscope, you probably better put on a hazmat suit. Because a virus can actually get inside you and affect you as you study it. And in my experience, the Bible is like that. As you study the Bible, it is not dead matter. It's living and active, as one of the authors of the Bible says. And it has the power to get inside of us and affect us as we study it. And so as I go to the Bible, I go to it with some degree of trepidation, some degree of uh, care and concern, because I know what the Bible can do to me uh, as I study it. One of the most important and significant turning, parts, uh, turning points in my life of faith was when I was a freshman in college at Berkeley, and I had largely stopped going to church that year. And I wasn't concerned about it. I didn't feel guilty for it. I didn't feel particularly obligated to be there, but I had stopped going. And, and something sort of mystical, something sort of spiritual and strange began to happen towards the end of my freshman year. When I would lie down to go to bed at night, I would hear a voice in my head, not audible, but strong. And it, it would ask this question, Jim, do you really love me? And I knew there was this, this story in the Bible where Peter and Jesus were in a conversation and Peter had denied that he knew Jesus and Jesus was crucified and then rose again. And he goes back to Peter and he says to Peter, Peter, do you even love me? <laughs> 
I remember that that was a, a question that Jesus had asked Peter in the Bible, but I thought that doesn't have anything to do with me. I, what does that got to do with me? I didn't feel guilty about the weeks that I wasn't in church. I didn't, I didn't feel like particularly conscientious about it. But every night as I would lay down to go to bed, I would just hear this nagging question with no explanation. Jim, do you really love me? And it was that, that tug within me that made me go seek out a church and a small group Bible study of a circle of other guys who were in college asking the same kinds of questions I was about life and faith. That was really a significant turning point that brought me back into a committed relationship with Jesus and a, a commitment to take part in the life of the church. What, what happened in that moment is the Holy Spirit was empowered with texts from the Bible that I had heard before and brought them up at a time that I needed them. And what I want to do in the next three weeks is, is empower the Holy Spirit with texts from the Scripture in your mind so that when you need them, the Holy Spirit can remind you of what you've heard. When you feel lonely, when you feel afraid, when you feel uncertain, I want the Holy Spirit to be armed with texts in your memory that it can bring up to remind you of what you've heard. The, the Bible should work for us like a good GPS that tells us where we're going. So the next three weeks, I want to give you a GPS, and that's what we're going to do. Okay, so that's a long introduction to, to 2 Kings chapter 22 at verse 8. We're going to step into the life of King Josiah. To put this in the greater context of the Hebrew people, they had been in slavery in Egypt. Moses had led them out. They had gone and established their promised land. They, they had their law, their Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. And now they were establishing a homeland that was going to be a land of peace, a land flowing with milk and honey, it said, a beautiful place where they could raise their families and practice their faith and live at peace. Everything became stable. They had good King David and then a string of kings after him. And they had settled into a, a place of stability and normalcy. And as a consequence, they put the GPS on the shelf and forgot about it. And the gods of the surrounding culture began to creep their way into Israel. The value systems, the worldviews that contradicted the things that God had taught them when they were using the GPS in the desert. The, these, these alternative worldviews had crept their way in and they had sort of syncretically blended those worldviews into their own. And nobody was looking at the GPS to see if they were on the right path. And then King Josiah comes along and they find the GPS. They find the scriptures that have been lost and ignored. And do you know where they find them? They find them at church. The Bible has been left at church in a closet on a shelf and is collecting dust. Now, this should be good caution for us. Have you ever forgotten the Bible at church? I mean, you know it's there. You know you can get to it when you need it, but you ignore it. You forget it. And you trust it's over there in that religious building. I can go get it when I need it. The Bible can get lost at church when everyone knows where it is. But the Bible is living and active. We need to interact with it. We can't just possess it. It has to possess us. And so here's the story of the rediscovery of the Bible in the time of Josiah. 
Hilkiah, the high priest, so this is the, the guy working at the temple, Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, so this is sort of the, uh, the runner, uh, the guy who's going to deliver messages between the priest and the king, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. The, the Bible was lost at church. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. They found the Bible because they were doing renovations in the temple. They, they went to clean out the closets. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. This was a sign of offense and shock and horror. The king hears the words of God's word, the words of the scripture, and he is mortified when he realizes how far off course they have gone from the GPS. He realized they have wandered away from the, the stories of their ancestors and the message that God delivered them when he gave to them when he called them out of slavery in Egypt. He tore his robes. He gave orders to Hilkiah the priest and to a number, number of other guys, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Go ask God what we're to do about the fact that we are off course. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Now, if you've read the first five books of the Bible, which is the books of the law, which is what they're talking about. They didn't have the complete Bible as we hold it today. They had the first five books uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you've read those books, you know what he found. He found books of God's word, which say the worst thing you can do is worship false gods. There's one God and one God only. This is the first commandment. Don't have any other gods before him and don't put up any idols. There is one God. And when you are faithful to God, God will reward you. God will take you into a land that will be your own. God will take care of you. And if you ignore God and reject God, God will surrender you to your own devices. God will let you have life on your own terms. God's worst punishment is not a lightning bolt. He's not going to zap us. God's worst punishment is to tell us, okay, have it your way. And Josiah realizes that they have allowed false gods of the world around them, the cultures around them, to infiltrate their culture. And they have welcomed in alternative worldviews and moralities that are not in keeping with what God had revealed to them. And Josiah is now mortified that they have gone so far astray. Does that ring a bell to anyone? Because it should. It's the world we're living in today. It doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative. You and I live in a world of false gods and alternative worldviews where right and wrong are up for grabs. And even we who go to church have allowed alternative worldviews to infiltrate our way of thinking. So we often live like the world around us rather than like people who know Jesus. Jesus does not command the way we spend our money. He does not command the way we treat our enemies. He does not command the way we live holy lives because we have allowed the, the gods of the world around us and their worldviews, their moral systems to infiltrate 
our own. I was in Seattle a week ago. My son and the French foreign exchange student who lives at our house this year had spring break, and so we went up to see my daughter who attends the University of Washington up there. Uh, and whenever I go to a new place, I like to look around and speculate about what gods are being worshipped in that culture. So I went up to Seattle and asked the question, what gods are being worshipped in Seattle? It's not hard to see. They're everywhere. They're prominent. They stand out. Uh, Seattle is a city that uh, glorifies the arts and yet is a place where no artist could afford to live. There are multi-million dollar condos and high-rises going up left and right. Mostly left, it's, it is Seattle. Uh, there are rainbow flags on every street. And on every corner, there is a cafe that serves delicious third-wave coffee. And next to it, a fine wine store that sells the best wines. And on the sidewalk in front of both of them, someone struggling with addiction issues and homeless. S Seattle is awash in the, the values of different cultures and different gods. And God loves the people of Seattle from the depths of his heart. Jesus loves the people of Seattle recklessly with all of his heart. If you're, if you're a Fox News watcher and you're waiting for me to say something bad about the city of Seattle, you better check yourself because Jesus loves the people of Seattle. Absolutely. The way he absolutely loves you and the way he wants you to absolutely love people who are different than you. But that said, Seattle is proud of the fact that it's a little bit weird. <laughs> and so on top of that, my hotel was across the street from the convention center. And going on at the convention center in Seattle last week was an anime convention. And if you don't know what an anime convention is, it's probably just as well. There were hundreds of people up and down every street in Seattle dressed like Japanese cartoon characters, grown adults wearing full costumes, walking up and down the streets, and of course, staying at the hotel across the street from the convention center, the hotel we were staying at. So I sat one morning at breakfast uh, early uh, in between a Pokemon and an elven princess, thinking about the sensibilities of the rising generation and thinking about the, the gods of Seattle and the, the value systems that were being worshipped, they, they actually came out in clear terms when I took a tour of the University of Washington, probably the most beautiful college campus I've ever seen. Uh, and, uh, and I'll tell you, the students at the University of Washington uh, are, the students at the University of Washington are 14% more attractive and successful than students anywhere else, speaking objectively, not as a father of a child, but speaking objectively. Um, but we took this guided tour of the campus. Uh, led by a student who had memorized a script written by a university official and probably checked by a lawyer. And that was where I was looking to, say, to, to ask, who are the gods being worshipped? And the student talked a lot about two things, about diversity and about safety and health. And on its face, those are both good things. God created a diverse world and God loves diversity. And God wants us to be safe and healthy. God leads his people to green pastures to rest beside still waters. The problem is, when you divorce the values of God from the God who created them, those values then become idols. They become secular gods themselves, and secular gods always get in fights with each other. 
just like the pantheon of Greek gods were always in fights with each other. The, the secular gods always end up in fights with each other. And so I, I listen for the places where the secular gods are going to get in fights. And I listen to the student praise the virtues of diversity and safety and health. And I, I didn't embarrass my children by asking the questions out loud, but I began to think through the questions that a follower of Jesus should ask. Are, are are we going to honor diversity to the point that is a threat to our safety and health? And are we going to honor safety and health to the point that it's a threat to our diversity? How are we going to, how are we going to handle it when these gods whom we have divorced from the God who made them become idols and begin to fight with one another? Are we going to teach our children that safety and health are so important that a lifestyle of sexual abstinence is better for you than a life of promiscuity? Because in the United States of America, one out of every four college students graduates with a sexually transmitted infection. We used to teach that outside of marriage, you should practice sexual abstinence. But in the name of diverse lifestyles, safety and health have gone by the wayside. Are we going to teach students abstinence from substance abuse? Or are we going to honor diverse lifestyles and freedom in which Distrust reigns and authorities should be questioned because statistically, one out of every three college students in America reports binge drinking in the last month, and one out of every five reports abusing illegal drugs. At what point do we allow the gods to fight it out to see who wins? If we seek to prevent abuse to the LGBTQ community, which we should, nobody should fear abuse and nobody should suffer abuse. But as we seek to prevent that abuse, are, are we allowed to talk about the mental and physical health consequences of lifestyles or is that a taboo subject? Who gets to win? Does the diversity God win or does the safety and health God win? Because when we divorce virtues, from the God who made them, they become secular gods, and secular gods always end up at war with each other. Now, pay attention to what I'm doing here. I'm not siding with traditional conservatives, nor with modern liberals. I'm actually, if anything, siding with classical liberals who believe in the freedom of speech, religious tolerance, and opposition to monarchy. I basically just don't like anybody telling me what to do, right? That's And classical liberalism that was the foundation of Modern liberal democracy, which we trace back through Thomas Jefferson, goes back to the British philosopher John Locke, who quotes prolifically from the Bible when he talks about freedom. He was a Christian man, and he uses the Bible to, to talk about the values of respecting individuals enough to give them liberty and tolerance. That's where this all comes from, and without the Bible, you don't have it. I, I'm not siding with uh, traditional conservatives, nor with modern liberals. I'm, I'm raising the question, what do we do when the secular gods get in fights with each other? Because they always do. <clears throat> Jesus calls you and I into a world in which he loves the diversity that he created. And he wants us to be healthy and safe. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death and walks with us and prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies and then takes us into green pastures beside still waters. So what shall we do in this world of warring gods when they end up in fights with one another? Are we allowed 
to ask questions about where those gods came from. The reason I ask all of this is because the world you and I live in today is the world of Josiah. What it feels like to you and I right now is what it felt like in the days of Josiah. He was born into a kingdom that was comfortable and stable, and all the values that existed around him felt normal. He didn't feel like he was surrounded by idols and, and false teachings. He, he grew up in a, in a cultural stream that felt normal to him. And it was in discovering the Bible that he realized how far off track normal actually was. And you and I, even if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, even if we go to church, have grown up in a culture of normal that is off track. And there are no bells that go off and tell us, hey, you're on the wrong path. What awakens us to the fact that we are in the wrong place is discovering the word of God. Every great reformation in Christian history occurred because someone rediscovered the Bible, just like in the days of King Josiah. In the 16th century, Martin Luther discovered the Bible, which had been written in Latin so only the church could control it. The common people could not read it. And Luther discovered a God who is radically more just and graceful and loving than the, the God that the church was talking about. And he brought criticism and reformation to the Catholic Church because of the way they abused the, the God of the Bible, the way they misused and misrepresented the God of the Bible. And if you and I take the Bible seriously today, we will discover a God who is radically more loving and graceful than the God we may have heard about. Another revolution happened a couple hundred years later in the, the life of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, who... Uh, had become a pastor, but lived a life of controversy and conflict, but then discovered on a, on a ship traveling across an ocean in the midst of a storm, a group of sailors who were devout Christians who were completely unafraid of death, and he realized he was missing something. And in opening up the scriptures, he discovered a God who was radically more sovereign than the God he had believed in. And that's who you and I are going to discover. When, when we discover the scriptures, we're going to discover a God who is more in control and more graceful than the God we have ever known. A couple hundred years later, about a century ago, there was another theologian, Karl Barth, who woke up in the normalcy of Protestant liberalism and discovered the God of the Bible. And in so doing, discovered a God who is so different from us that he is not merely our consultant. He is a God whose perfection demands repentance and obedience. One theologian said that Karl Barth's writings dropped a nuclear bomb on the playground of the liberal theologians who only wanted social good without a God behind them. Barth discovered a God who was perfect, a God who is so different from us that all we could do was repent and obey. And that's the God you and I will discover when we turn to the Bible, a God who is so much better than us that he demands our repentance and our obedience. I want you and I to rediscover the scriptures again in the next few weeks. I want us to rediscover the God of the Bible and realize you and I have been born into, have awakened into a cultural stream that is surrounded by and infiltrated by false gods. 
who have imported worldviews and ethical systems that are wrong into the lives of Christian people. And when we rediscover the God of the Bible, he will level our false gods. I want you to, to discover Jesus Christ, the Word of God incarnate, recorded in the Word of God written, and invite Him into your life in a way that allows Him to reorient our worship so that we worship the one true God alone. And when the gods of our culture call out a demand for obedience, we recognize them for who they are. And instead, set our course by the GPS, which God has given us. So I'm going to give you a, a reading challenge that we're going to start this week. Uh, and I mean for this to last for you for a while. Um, I want you to set out, if you, unless you are a biblical scholar who already reads the Bible every day, I want you to set out to accomplish one of two goals, either to read the New Testament or to read the entire Bible. Now, it, all, both of those start with just reading a single book of the Bible. If you've never read a book of the Bible, I want you to do that first. And regardless of where you start, you want to start with one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Read the story of the life of Jesus. That is the center point. That is the focal point of the Bible. If you've never read a Gospel before, do that. If you read a chapter of the New Testament a day, you will finish the whole thing in less than nine months. If you read three chapters of the Bible a day, you'll finish the whole Bible in a year. So one of those two goals, a chapter a day of the New Testament or three chapters a day of the whole Bible, finish one of the two of those in the next year, by next Easter. This will be an Easter to Easter challenge. Um, if, if, you, <coughs> if you need a starting point, read a gospel first, then read the book of Exodus, which is actually the center of the Hebrew scriptures, then read the book of Romans, which, ca which captures the message of the gospel as well as any book. And then read the book of Genesis. If you've never read those four before, that's your starting point. Don't start from left and read right. You will die in Leviticus like a sacrificial lamb. Um, but those, that's, where, that's where to start. And let's make that our reading challenge for the year to come. Let's at least get the New Testament under our belts if you don't want to try to take on uh, the whole thing. What I'm trying to do is to put into your hands and into your life a GPS so that in times where you need it, in times where you are lonely, where you're afraid, where you're confused, where you're hopeless or without direction, the Holy Spirit is empowered with texts that you have read to bring them up in your memory at exactly the time that you need them so that he might do what he seeks to accomplish in this diverse world that he made and loves to provide for you health and safety, to lead you into green pastures beside still waters where you will know the love of the God who made you. Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you love us so much that you have left for us this GPS, this, this guidance to find our way through lives. And I, 
I ask that you would open our eyes to the world around us that we have been born into and assumed to be normal. Awaken us to the reality and the presence of false gods and wrong directions. And teach us to hear you clearly. Use your scriptures, living and active, to remind us of who you are and to call us to follow. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.